Today's case follows a man who preyed on innocent gay men in New York City during the 1990s. A man who was able to fool those around him into thinking he was harmless, but pretty soon it would become clear that he was one of the most horrific serial killers of all time. This is the story of Richard Rogers, aka The Last Call Killer. Well, howdy there, strangers. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to another episode of Beers with Queers, the true crime podcast where I research a case and Brad and potentially you guys know nothing about it. Exactly. You might go into it clueless, which this one you might have heard of before. But before we get into that, how did you guys like Cocaine Bear if you went and saw it this weekend? We went and saw it and it was uh, everything that I could hope for. It was stupid, it was bloody, and it had a lot of cocaine. But um, I still think the true story was a, a little bit better, but, you know. I think the movie was better. I like the, the bear on cocaine, but I'm a simple man. That's true. It was, it was a good movie, don't get me wrong. They're about equal. So, um, but yeah, let us know what you think if you've seen it. So, Today's case is one that most of you probably have heard of at least once before. It's pretty infamous and has actually really begun to get a lot of attention in recent years, especially this last year, because the latest season of American Horror Story actually based the storyline on it. And this was um, season 11. This is New York City. We've not watched it yet. We kind of fell off the wagon with AHS around season 9. But... I heard uh, mixed things about it. so And also that means I'm not actually sure how accurate the storyline in the show is to the true story. So once you guys hear this, let us know. So today we are going to be talking about Richard Rogers, a.k.a. The Last Call Killer, who was a gay serial killer who preyed on young queer men throughout the early 1990s in New York. He's not as well known as some of the other infamous gay serial killers like Dahmer or Gacy. Um, have you heard of him before? I haven't. Okay, well, uh, interesting. I thought, actually, maybe you may have heard of him before, because, like I said, a lot of podcasts have been starting to cover him in recent years, but you never heard us tell it, so. I'm a Dateline NBC podcast guy. I don't usually like too much chit-chat in my podcasts. This is, um, uh, this is definitely not a story I don't think Dateline would cover. This is a little bit more on the graphic side. So it's pretty, um, actually pretty bizarre how he's not more famous like Don Gacy because this man was horrific. His murders were brutal, and he is the literal definition of a monster. And we'll soon learn that there were actually several occasions where he could have been caught early, and several people potentially wouldn't have lost their lives. But of course, this was early 1990s, height of the AIDS pandemic in New York and all over the world, really, or America. Police really didn't want to get involved. Um, You know, that may sound familiar to a similar case we covered a few episodes back, the Grinder Killer. So, 
And also, before we jump into it, the majority of this info comes from the book Last Call by Elon Green, and I highly recommend it. It goes into a lot more detail. It's like 500 pages, but it's such a good book. So let's jump right into it. On the afternoon of May 5th, 1991, a maintenance worker was going about his job emptying the trash bins at a rest stop area near the Pennsylvania Turnpike in Lancaster County. He reached one trash bin in particular and attempted to pull a trash bag out of it, but found that it wouldn't budge and was very heavy, which of course is immediately odd. So he got curious and he began to tear into the bag, only to be greeted by another bag, and then another, and then another. In total, the worker had to tear through eight garbage bags before finally opening the last one to see a man's corpse staring back at him. Now, this actually didn't phase the man too much, as he was previously an EMT, so he had, he'd seen some shit before. But he immediately called the police, and detectives soon arrived to examine the bizarre scene. The man was pulled from the trash bin in the fetal position and laid out on the ground next to it to get a f- full view of his body, and it was clear from the start that the man had suffered a violent death. The man suffered dozens of stab wounds all over his back, chest, and abdomen, and most terrific of all... He had been castrated, and his penis was then shoved into his mouth. Thankfully, at least, an autopsy would, was able to determine that the castration had been done post-mortem. So, still absolutely horrific, but at least he wasn't alive to feel it. Hold on just one second. So, this man was whole in these trash bags. He wasn't pieces. No. He was just a whole man. Yes. In a trash bag, in multiple trash bags. Yes. But a full man. Yes. Wow. Okay, I can understand why that would be heavy and seem a little odd and out of place. Well, you'll see here soon that um, they start to come in pieces. So. so police originally had no clue who the man was and labeled him a John Doe. But just five days later, a trucker driving along the same turnpike stumbled across several more large barrels and notified police. When they investigated the barrels, they found the deceased man's clothes, watch, wallet, and several pieces of paper with his name and number on it. Police were then able to positively identify the deceased man as 54-year-old Peter Anderson a financer at the Bank of New York, and a closeted gay man. So now, police had identified the suspect, but not the killer. Little did police know Peter would be only the first of a string of brutal murders and dismemberments throughout the New York area over the next several years. So now, while we will get more into Peter's backstory and other details a little bit later, let's um, rewind a bit and take it back to the very beginning, where the story all starts. And that is with a literal piece of dog shit named Richard Rogers. So Richard, Richard, Richard Westall Rogers Jr. was born on June 16, 1950 in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and was one of five children. He, his parents were both very hardworking, and in the late 1950s, the family moved down to Florida for Richard's dad to look for a better paying job as he specialized as a lobster man. So he catches lobsters. Now, Richard's dad tried really hard to bond with his eldest son, and that, of course, meant trying to do things that most, you know, father-sons do, like hunting, fishing, football, or basketball, but Richard hated it, and instead preferred to spend his free time reading or helping his mom in the kitchen and attending Girl Scout meetings with her and his sisters, which I think a lot of 
queer kids, especially queer boys specifically, can relate to. You remember those days where, you know, your dad's form of bonding was having you hold the flashlight while he worked on the car. And it's literally like this um, this meme where it said something like, Dad wanted me to learn about cars, but all I learned was how to hold a flashlight and get yelled at. <laughs> so um, I don't know if anyone else experienced that. But that's kind of what Richard's experience was like. Now, as he got older and entered high school, Richard really began to have a rough go at things with his classmates mercilessly bullying him and tormenting him. Richard was very skinny, quiet, and just overall a very timid and shy dude, which of course made him an easy target for bullies, which also made fun of his gay behavior, as they would call it, and his high-pitched voice. Richard also refused to shower with the other kids because he didn't want them to see him naked, and that resulted in one incident where a group of boys dragged him into the locker room showers, held him under one of the showers, and essentially waterboarded him. So kids are fucking ruthless. And it is always weird to me, like those high school bullies that want to make fun of you for being gay, and then they do something like this, which is really gay in my book. So... Of course, it's like, you know, what are you hiding? Which we know exactly what they're hiding. So this really caused Richard to retreat inside of himself, and he would just go through the days trying to make himself invisible in the hallways at school. But of course, that only made him more of a target. Now, this is when many psychologists who study the case believe that Richard began to somewhat develop internalized homophobia. Which, for those of you who don't know... The official, the, official, the official definition of internalized homophobia is both a conscious and an unconscious reaction to external negative attitudes towards people with a sexual orientation minority. In many cases, internalized homophobia starts and is nurtured during the formative years of childhood and adolescence. This can lead to feelings of guilt, anger, and shame into adulthood. So Richard began to almost hate gay people. Because, you know, he himself was secretly gay, which was what was making him the target of this relentless bullying. And also, please don't think that I'm trying to make you feel sorry or sympathy for him because he really is a literal shitbag. But this is just kind of the full story of how he developed the rationale behind his killings. So now, a former classmate of Richard's would be interviewed years later by Alon Green, the author of that book. And they would recall one very noticeable incident, an early sign of Richard's bloodlust. So sometime in the 1960s, Richard apparently suffered a nervous breakdown and attacked his elderly neighbor with a knife after she said or did something to upset him. This resulted in him being institutionalized for several years before finally being released in time to graduate from Palmetto High School in 1968. Now, I do want to point out that this has never actually been confirmed. Alon Green was unable to find any reports or documents relating to an attack or Richard ever being locked up. So it may very well be just one of those, you know, small town rumors. But again, who knows? If that is true, that's a pretty big um, warning sign. So, So Richard graduated high school and he went on to attend Florida Southern College where he was again described as being very shy mostly kept to himself. However, he was able to make several friends, including one of his roommates. Now, this roommate has never been named, so we don't actually know too much about him, but we do know that him and Richard were described as being inseparable at college. It's unknown if they were a couple, 
or not, but many people on campus assumed that they were. Eventually, Richard graduated in 1972 with a bachelor's degree in French before moving up north and attending the University of Maine as a graduate student. And this is where we get to his first murder. I'm still thinking about him putting a full-size man in a dumpster. You know, he was described as being a small man, so I'm thinking at some point he had to bulk up or something because throwing dead weight into a dumpster, just I'm still stuck on that. Sorry. Well, he... um. He wasn't. He still wasn't a big man. He was like five ten. So I don't think they ever figured out how he got them into a trash bin. But like I said, after that, we'll get into it later. But he did. It must have been a bitch to do because after that's when he started cutting up the pieces and putting them in bags. So, um, but that first time around, he somehow fit a whole ass man into a trash can and carried him and put him in a dumpster. Which that's crazy. So, after moving to Maine. Richard moved into a house with two other students named William Mazzaroli and Frederick Spencer. Despite living together, none of the men were really close or even really talked that much to one another, although William would tell investigators later that while he got along fine with Richard, he described him as a quiet and odd guy who was also very squeamish, which is another weird thing. He could sense a tension between Fred and Richard, and Fred seemed to not care much for Richard due to his odd behavior, and his uh, eccentric attitude, you know. But even still, there was never any type of altercation, and the two mainly just avoided one another. So, on the afternoon of May 1st, 1973, two cyclists riding down Route 116 by Old Town, Maine, spotted something laying at the edge of the woods, which they soon realized was, in fact, a body. Police were then... Uh, Police were quickly called, and upon arriving at the scene, they found the shirtless body of a man covered in blood and wrapped in a nylon tent. A key found in the man's pocket soon led police to a nearby post office where they were able to match the key to 22-year-old Frederick Spencer. This, of course, led police back to the house where Fred was living with William and Richard. After being let into the house by William, police began to look around for any obvious clues And that is when they went upstairs and found blood droplets leading all the way back to the room of Richard Rogers. Now, upon going inside to look around, police found blood splatter on the walls, as well as bloody fingerprints on the bedroom doorknob, a bloody shoe print, and a bloody hammer. So, of course, Richard was immediately brought in for questioning, and it didn't take long before he openly admitted that, yes, he had murdered Fred Spencer. So, now... Fred had suffered eight blows to the back of his head, any number of which police would say could have been fatal. Richard would later say that he attacked Fred with a roofing hammer, and even after hitting him eight times, Fred still wasn't dead. And so Richard wrapped a plastic bag around his head and suffocated him to death. Afterwards, he wrapped the body in a nylon tent, dragged it through a parking lot to his car before dumping it at the edge of the woods. Now, Richard claimed he was innocent, though, in the murder because it was self-defense. According to Richard, he had walked into his room a few days earlier and discovered Fred attempting to steal some of his belongings. When Richard confronted him, Fred threatened to attack him with the hammer before the two got into a scuffle, and Richard was able to wrestle the hammer from Fred, and that's when he hit him eight times in the head. He also stated that he didn't mean to kill Fred by wrapping the bag around his head. He only wanted to knock him out. 
However, after realizing Fred that, that Fred was actually dead, he panicked and hid the body. He would later tell investigators that he wanted to come forward to the police earlier, but that he was kind of afraid to. So, Richard was officially arrested and charged with first-degree murder, his trial beginning in October of 1973, and he entered a not-guilty plea. Now, of course, the prosecutor had some issues with the self-defense claim. One, all the blows were to the back of Fred's head, meaning he was facing away from Richard. Two, they found it hard to believe that Richard, like I said, was very small and scrawny, was able to wrestle a hammer from Fred, who was an active outdoorsman and in top shape. And three, Richard had zero defensive wounds, so they immediately called bullshit on this. Now, Richard was the last person to testify at the trial, and everyone present said that he did an amazing job. He was clear, calm, and convincing, and seemed like an innocent young man. Now, one interesting thing to note, although it was never officially confirmed, jurors at the trial interviewed later remembered Richard's lawyer attempting to use the gay panic defense on at least a couple of occasions, suggesting that Fred had attempted to come on to Richard, and so Richard killed him in response. Now, for those of you who don't know what the gay panic defense is, it's a legal strategy in which a defendant claims to have acted in a state of violent, temporary insanity, committing assault or murder due to unwanted sexual advances from someone of the same sex. And not to get too sidetracked, but the, a lot of you who are listening that are really into true crime may know this defense was used in at least one other very infamous murder case, the uh, Jenny Jones show murder, So, which we actually might cover in the future, so I'll leave it at that. Now, this, of course, is ironic considering Richard himself was gay, although he still wasn't out at the time, and Fred, by all accounts, was very much straight and had no prior relations with any other man. So eventually, Richard's lawyer asked the judge to lower his charge from first-degree murder to manslaughter, and the judge agreed. As he said, as he later told the state, Richard had shown that he had no prior criminal record and was a straight-A honor student, and he seemed to have acted under sudden provocation. So on November 2nd, 1973, the jury was sent off to deliberate, and it only took them three hours before they reached a verdict. And, you know, most of the time that's weird is when they take that little of a time and they come back, you immediately know it's like, oh, it's a guilty plea. They like they went in, they're like, that fucker's guilty. Let's go back out. But the jury returned to the courtroom, and when the judge asked them if they reached a verdict, the foreman stood up, announced that on the charges of manslaughter, they had found Richard not guilty. Richard Rogers was a free man and unknown to everyone commit everyone else committed his first of multiple murders. Now, we will never know what actually happened the day that Fred was murdered, but police today do fully believe that Richard intentionally murdered Fred for an unknown reason. So this was his, um, his first run-in with the law. That probably should have been the last one, too. Yeah. <clears throat> Hitting a guy in the back of the head with a hammer and then yelling self-defense. I don't know who his lawyers were, but that's, uh... A good-ass lawyer. <laughs> or this guy's just very, like, charming or something because... Well, that's what that's what they said, too, is um, he's a scrawny dude, so they took his height and went into account. Like, And then also, he was a straight-A student, never gotten in trouble before that they knew of, and it did seem to just come out of nowhere. So, uh... Your first murder's free. 
that's kind of how it is. Everyone gets one. Not really. Don't do that. So this was his first run-in with the law, and he had escaped with literally no punishment for smashing a man's head in with a hammer. Not guilty. He got no punishment. Yeah, not guilty. So he is completely clear to this crime, can never be charged again. After his acquittal, Richard decided to get a fresh start and moved to New York in 1973, where he also decided to completely change his course of study from French to nursing. He enrolled at Pace University School of Nursing, graduating in 1978 with a master's degree before getting a job as a nurse at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. Now, this move was to New York was actually pretty significant for Richard because remember up to this point, he had hid the fact that he was gay. And this was 1973, just four years after the Stonewall riots. So New York was in the process of a gay awakening. The first Pride Parade was held in 1970, and the queer community was really blossoming and gaining a lot more freedom. Gay bars had stopped being raided by police, and so more and more were popping up every week. And uh, it was really thriving. Queer people were really thriving at the time. And this was a complete culture shock to Richard. And although he still never officially came out at this time, he began to frequent the gay bars around the city and soon began to bring home and hook up with a lot of men. Now, he would work the night shift at the hospital and come home in the early morning and spend hours cleaning. And I mention that because that is the one thing many of his neighbors would later say about him. He was extremely tidy, and they almost always heard the sound of a vacuum cleaner going in his apartment, which would drive me fucking crazy. But they also described him as being pretty reserved, but always friendly and helpful if any neighbor needed it. Richard worked in the ICU taking care of children and newborns and was described as being dedicated and empathetic to all of his patients. He eventually bought his own place in Staten Island in 1986 and by all accounts committed no known crimes or murders during this time. So that's where a lot of people couldn't see him as a killer because like everyone that worked with him at the hospital described like he was amazing at his job. He always seemed very compassionate and like he genuinely cared for all his patients. And so that's why no one ever suspected him. But of course that would soon change. On July 11th, 1988, Richard took a night off from work for the first time in months and, you know, decided he wanted to go out to a bar. He walked in and eventually found an empty seat near a few businessmen chatting about real estate. Seeming to have lost his shy nature since moving to New York, Richard soon joined them in on the conversation. Now, one man in the group named Sandy caught Richard's eye and eventually the two kind of broke off into their own separate conversation. Eventually, Sandy's friends left the bar and the two men by themselves. Richard asked if Sandy wanted to come check out his new apartment in Staten Island, and although Sandy at first refused, he agreed to go after Richard promised to drive him back home. Now, once inside the apartment, Richard offered his guest a drink, and although Sandy asked for a Coke, Richard handed him a glass of orange juice instead, and Sandy quickly drank it because it was hot as fuck in this apartment. And that is one thing, like, Richard mentioned to Sandy before they got up there, like, just wanted to warn you, dude, this apartment is basically boiling. And according to Richard, there was nothing he could do. That was just the way the apartment was. So within seconds of drinking the OJ, Sandy began to feel his vision blur and his body go numb before completely blacking out. And I always think about that scenario like you just can't even imagine how terrifying that has to be. So now Sandy would awaken hours later 
He had been stripped nude, and his hands and ankles were bound together with hospital ID bracelets Richard had stolen from the hospital. And I don't know if any of you have ever tried to remove one of those, but those things are hard as fuck to get off. And Sandy was tied up with more than a dozen of them on each limb. Sandy began to scream for help, and that's when Richard appeared with a syringe and very calmly told Sandy, this will take care of you for a while before injecting the needle into his hand, causing Sandy to pass out again. Now, the next thing Sandy knew, he was being pushed through the revolving door of his own apartment back in Manhattan. The next morning, after regaining consciousness, he immediately went to the hospital because he was terrified he may have contracted HIV from being assaulted by Richard because at this point, AIDS had begun ravaging the community. Thankfully, it came back negative and... uh, He finally went to the police, giving them Richard's name and address. Five weeks after Richard, five weeks after this, Richard was finally arrested. But just two days later, he was released and went back to work like nothing happened. Now, Richard would eventually go on trial for this assault in 1990. And like the last time, he told prosecutors a completely different story. Richard's version of events was that Sandy was the one who propositioned him and even asked to be tied up. When Richard declined, Sandy got angry before storming out of the apartment. Richard believes Sandy made up the story to get revenge for being spurned. Now again, it was pretty much a he said, she said situation with both pointing the finger at the other. Richard's lawyers claims that Sandy was already extremely drunk before he got to the apartment and he had a history of going home with multiple men and so that he probably had just dreamt the whole thing. The strategy of painting Sandy as the aggressor somehow fucking worked. Because in February 1990, Richard Rogers was acquitted for the rape of Sandy and was free to go with all charges dropped. This guy's so lucky. It's the, who was the lawyer? Because, but um, again, because people saw Richard, he was this calm, cool, collected dude. They're like, he, he's got the background. He doesn't seem like the type to do this sort of thing. Now, unfortunately, Sandy suffered from severe PTSD following the assault and found himself getting more and more reclusive terrified to go out or trust anyone and wherever he is today i do hope he is well so now this is the second time that richard has gotten off scot-free for committing a serious crime with zero consequences and of course this started to give him a bit of a big head and made him feel like he could begin pushing the boundaries of his violent fantasies and boy did he push those fucking boundaries And so that brings us to the beginning of The Last Call Murders. And now these murders span from 1991 to 1993. And when they, we've officially circled back to Peter Anderson, the first known victim of the murder spree. So Peter Anderson was a very successful banker and had come out as gay to his family several years prior and even ended up leaving his second wife in order to live as his true authentic self. But by 1991, Peter was described as being very unhappy and lonely, having squandered almost half a million dollars left to him by an aunt, and possibly being HIV positive, although he was terrified to get tested and confirm it. Several people in his life would later say that Peter said on at least a couple of occasions that he felt he'd be dead by the end of the year. So on the night of May 3rd, 1991, Peter and a friend left a fundraising event and decided to continue the party at a local gay club called The Townhouse, The bartender would later say that Peter became extremely drunk to the point where he actually cut Peter off and told him to leave. Although Peter wanted to keep the party going, his friend was ready to call it a night, 
and so he booked Peter a room at a nearby hotel before putting him in a taxi to be driven there. Upon arriving at the hotel, Peter, who was still very drunk at this point, caused a scene at the front desk before walking back out of the hotel and into the night, never to be seen alive again. Now, nobody knows for sure what exactly happened to Peter after he left the hotel or how he came to brush paths with Richard Rogers, but the friend that was with Peter that night would later say that he believes Peter, in his drunken state, forgot that he had been cut off at the townhouse and was actually going back to have a nightcap. It's there that he probably ran into Richard, who took him back to his apartment and stabbed him to death. Police could find no usable fingerprints or DNA, and no leads ever materialized to a suspect, and for more than a year, his case would grow cold, until July of 1992. So on July 10th, 1992, two maintenance workers were going about their morning routine, emptying trash cans along Route 72 in Woodland Township, New Jersey, about two hours outside of Manhattan. The pair eventually stopped at a rest area and found several large white bags sitting around a trash bin. Although nothing fell out of the ordinary at first except for the fact that the bags were unusually heavy, they soon noticed that blood was dripping from several of the bags. But even then, at first they chalked it up to being dead fish or other body parts used by fishermen or hunters in the area, and so they just loaded them up and took them back to the junkyard. As the pair were unloading the bags, one of the workers just could not shake the feeling that something was really wrong, and so he decided to open one of the bags and check out what was inside. Inside, he found a man's severed head staring back at him, and police were quickly called. So just a few hours later, at another rest area, two more maintenance men were collecting trash from the bins when they discovered multiple black garbage bags sitting around one of them. The pair began to collect the bags, but as one lifted a bag to toss it into the truck, it ripped open and a severed leg came falling out. So police were able to gather all the garbage bags from the two separate crime scenes and they used them to piece together a horrific puzzle. So this is going to get um, kind of gory, so trigger warning for the squeamish. In one bag, police found the severed head cut, cut off at the fourth cervical vertebrae. In another, they found two arms, both severed at the shoulder joint, as well as a 4 by 4 piece of skin. The third bag contained multiple mutilated organs, such as the man's intestines and his stomach, which had actually been cut in half, as well as a bloody shower curtain, surgical gloves, a bed sheet, and a few stray hairs. The fourth bag contained the upper torso, which had been severed right above the navel. The fifth bag contained the lower abdomen and a pelvis, and the sixth and final bag contained the legs and it cut off at the femur. During the autopsy, the 4x4 piece of skin was found to fit along the man's neck, and it actually appeared to have a very large bite mark on it. Multiple stab wounds were also discovered all over the man's severed body parts, but mainly to his chest, abdomen, and back. One stab, was actually, one stab had actually perforated his heart, which is believed to be the killing blow. Ligature marks around his wrists, ankles, and waist suggested that he was hogtied before death, and that his body was washed clean of blood afterwards. So this is where he starts um, really amping it up. Now, it didn't actually take long for the police to discover who the man's identity was, as in the trash can was also his briefcase, wallet, and shoes. It was 54-year-old businessman Thomas Richard McCauley, a married father of four from Massachusetts who often visited New York on business trips. He also happened to like men, 
and would often take an extra day to himself whenever he went on these trips in order to go to the gay bars and, you know, potentially hook up, which is something his wife Margaret would later say she was well aware of. Police were able to use Thomas's credit card transactions to trace his steps the night of his murder, and that led them back to the townhouse bar. After interviewing several patrons and patrons and bartenders, they got a better view of Thomas's last night alive. On July 8th, Thomas spent the day at a business meeting before deciding to go out that night and hang with a new friend he had made on his frequent twip, twips, his frequent trips, named Johnny Gibson. The two were at the township bar having a drink and talking when Johnny noticed that Tom kept looking over his shoulder at a man sitting alone at the bar. Although Johnny had seen the man multiple times throughout the years, he had never actually knew his name or spoke to him. And of course, that man was Richard Rogers. Now, Johnny admitted that he had a pretty big crush on Tom, but could feel that Tom did not feel the same way. However, he did see Richard as he didn't see Richard as much competition as according to him Richard was very average looking. Even so, eventually Tom excused himself to go talk to Richard, to which Johnny said to himself, "I guess he likes the dumpy pudgy types." <laughs> so, you know, those catty gays, they got to get a zinger in there. So now Johnny, now angry of course, went downstairs to the bottom bar to have a drink. After he came back up after about 20 minutes, he, saw, he said Tom and the man were gone, and that would be the last time anyone saw Tom alive again. So now, it is unclear what exactly went down after Richard took Tom back to his apartment. We don't know if Richard attacked him right away or if the two chatted first, but at some point, Richard tied Tom up, stabbed him multiple times in the chest and back, and then got to work dismembering his body. Richard used his knowledge as a surgical nurse to dislocate disarticulate Tom's joints so it would be easier to remove the limbs. And remember, this is the guy whose old roommate said that he got squeamish. And this was actually one clue Richard inadvertently gave to police. They could tell whoever killed Tom had medical knowledge and almost definitely worked in the surgical field, as the cuts were too precise and showed no signs of hesitation. They were also able to lift 28 fingerprints from the trash bags used to hold Tom's remains, as well as a palm print, However, when they ran the prints, they did not come back with a match to anyone in the system. Police were still hopeful, though. They may catch the killer, as another lead came in the form of surgical gloves found in the trash bags with Tom. The box the gloves came in were also stuffed into the bag, and police were able to trace the barcode on the box to a CVS located in Staten Island. However, either by blind luck or intentional on Richard's part, the store itself had no security cameras, and nobody remembered selling the gloves. Police had reached a dead end and were unable to get any more info, and with that, Tom's case grew cold, much to the dismay of his widow and their children who still held out hope that justice would be served. So after just a few months of investigation, police officially announced that Tom's murder was a cold case, and with that, Richard had gotten away with three murders, to this point counting Fred's, and police didn't expect him at all. He was not a suspect in any way. So it Again, that boosted his confidence. He took the cold case news as a signal that it was time for him to strike again. So on the morning of May 10th, 1993, a man was driving along Crow Hill Road, a single lane dirt road that cut through the forest in Manchester Township, New Jersey. As he drove by, he noticed a large amount of trash bags scattered in an area known for being a dumping ground for people's trash. 
He didn't think much of it at first until he briefly caught a glimpse of something sticking out of one of the bags. Human fingers. He quickly called the police, and investigators arrived soon after. Now, upon arriving, detectives found a severed arm lying almost in the middle of the road, having been torn from a garbage bag by an animal. Nearby, they found nearby. <laughs> nearby, they found a familiar scene: six large garbage bags stacked around each other, and upon opening the bags, they were greeted with a familiar sight. One bag had his arms. One had his severed legs. Another with the torso severed at the waist and finally his head. It was clear that the body parts had been there for at least several days due to the state of decomposition they were in. An autopsy would later show multiple stab wounds to the chest and the back area, as well as ligature marks around his wrists and ankles. Like Tom's body, the victim had also been washed clean of blood after he was dismembered. They estimated he had been dead three to five days before his parts were found. So now, unlike the previous two victims, nothing was found at the scene or nearby that could positively identify the victim, and so police took his fingerprints, and within a few hours, they had a match. The victim was 44-year-old Eddie Marrero, a gay escort from Manhattan. Now, unfortunately, not much was known about Eddie's life prior to his death, other than he bounced around from place to place. Police were... Police were unable to track down any known relatives and thus turned to Eddie's prior arrest records to kind of retrace his steps. They found that he had been arrested several times over the last decade for solicitation at a nearby bus terminal just west of town, town, town Square, Times Square. So they went to the terminal to check things out. At the bus terminal, detectives met a man named Carlos Santiago who told them that Eddie had often used the restroom as a place to turn tricks with clients but that he also frequently went to several gay bars in the area to look for potential clients even potentially going to the townhouse bar on at least several occasions but this has never been been able to be positively confirmed now carlos stated that on may 6th eddie had said he was going to meet a date in greenwich village but did not say the man's name before he boarded a bus at the terminal and was never seen alive again. Now, it was never fully confirmed how Eddie and Richard came to cross paths, but one police theory is that after his murder of Peter and Tom, Richard knew he couldn't just keep luring people back to his house from bars because people were starting to get on edge, and they would start to take notice of him. So he said he figured he needed an easy target, someone who was a sure thing, and that that is when he began to prowl for prostitutes. Police were able to track down 11 potential stores that the bags Eddie was found in came from, one of which was on Staten Island, the same location the gloves from Tom's case were found. They were actually able to track down the store that sold them, but again, unfortunately, that store did not have cameras and no one remembered selling the bags to anybody. And with that, the police were at another dead end. Now, police were able to pull three fingerprints from the bag and sent them out, but came up with no matches. Unlike in the case of Peter and Tom, whose investigations went on for several months, the investigation into Eddie's murder stopped after just two weeks. And I think we they kind of let it fall to the wayside. And I think we all know why. Because not only was Eddie gay, he was also a sex worker, and authorities are very infamous for not treating, not putting as much effort into the cases of sex workers as others, I mean, even to this day. So, 
it's kind of bullshit to the 10th degree, but this is another murder that Richard had gotten away with. No one, no one even suspected him. And that leads us to the final known victim of the last call murders. So on July 29th, 1993, Richard took the night off from work and decided that he was ready to go on the prowl again. He went down to the Five Oaks Bar in Greenwich Village at around 3.45 a.m., so now it's July 30th. He, had made, he made it just in time as the bartender that night, Lisa Hall, announced last call. In the bar, Richard's eyes immediately fell upon a regular at the bar, 56-year-old Michael Sakara. Now, Michael was often described as being to the Five Oaks Bar as Norm was to Cheers, and I've never actually seen Cheers. Don't come for me, but I'm assuming that means he was a big regular. He was there every single night. Everybody knew his name. Exactly. He was like, well, it even said in the book, he was kind of like the unofficial president of the club. Everyone knew him. He knew everyone. And he even actually had his own bar stool at the bar, like reserved for him. And that's exactly where he'd be every night. Now, Michael was described as being very friendly and outgoing towards people. And so it didn't seem odd when Richard sat down beside him and the two began talking. After a while of talking, Michael even actually introduced Richard to Lisa and gave his name as Mark. Now, Richard, or Mark, stated that he was a nurse at St. Vincent's. Lisa continued on with her closing duties as the two men sat in conversation for several minutes. Lisa would later say, even though Richard wasn't intimidating in the least, she couldn't shake the feeling something was off, but figured it was just her imagination. So Lisa turned her back for several minutes to finish cleaning up, and when she came back around, both men had disappeared, and Michael would never be seen alive again. Just three hours later, at around 7 a.m., a man collecting bottles would discover a bag near the Bay Overlook that contained Michael's shoes, wallet, and briefcase. Feeling uneasy about the discovery, he anonymously dropped them off at a nearby police station. Now, just a few hours after this, at around 10.30 a.m., a hot dog vendor named Ronald Coliandra took his car and began to set up shop near the Overlook. As he was getting ready, he noticed that the bins nearest to his station were completely filled which they had not been the previous morning. Now, he immediately went over to open them and find out what was inside, but not because he was curious, because Ronald actually had a hobby of taking trash people dumped illegally in his trash bins and then going and dumping it on their lawns. So he was looking for anything that might have that person's address on it, which is iconic behavior. But as he grabbed a bag sitting on top, it ripped open and he found a severed head staring back at him. Ronald dug further into the trash can and discovered a bag containing a pair of severed arms. He enlisted the help of a customer and drove straight to the police station. Now, unlike the previous victim, this one was obviously very, very fresh, and the medical examiner was able to determine that he had been dumped there only hours before. Police were able to use the items dropped off by the man earlier at the station to identify the victim, and they actually took his driver's license and held it up to the severed head to confirm the ID. And unfortunately, it was Michael Sakara. Now, like Peter, Tom, and Eddie before him, Michael's body had been washed and cleaned of blood before being dismembered. But unlike the previous three, who had all been stabbed to death, 
An autopsy revealed that although Michael had been stabbed several times, he had actually been bludgeoned to death with a heavy and sharp object. The medical examiner would later say that his skull was shattered like it was done by a high-impact car crash. Now, police were able to retrace Michael's last movements the night of his murder, and that led them back to the Five Oaks Bar, where they broke the news to Lisa, who was devastated, of course. She did, however, tell them about the man that Michael was last seen with, but unfortunately, she couldn't remember his name or really what he looked like, because remember, according to everyone, Richard was really average-looking, and uh, he kind of was. She did, however, remember he said he worked at St. Vincent's Medical Center, which now, of course, that was a lie because he worked at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital. And police now believe that Richard intentionally would tell people that to try to throw them off his trail. So the dude's not dumb by any stretch of the imagination. He thought this He thought this shit out. He's also very time efficient because, like, we're talking like three hours. He cut, He dropped off the guy's stuff, put it in a different place, washed the bodies dismembered them, done whatever he done that he got the kicks off of with the bodies or whatever, and then disposed of it in like three hours. I can't even get out of the house and with my gym clothes and everything like that with under like an hour. No, I mean, he was, the bitch was efficient, but um, in a very horrific way. Now, while all of this was going on, police are still trying to find some things that are still missing. Michael's legs and torso. But before anything else happened, police and the world were about to learn of a serial killer on the loose in New York City. Just two days after Michael was found murdered on August 2nd, 1993, several members of the New Jersey police actually showed up at the prosecutor's office to mention the extreme similarities between Michael's case and the cold cases of Tom and Eddie. They even had a slideshow presentation created in order to show the similar bags, murder weapon, and even the knots used to tie the bags. They were looking to get permission to create a joint task force, and they got it. So I think that was really awesome, actually. Like, they did take the time to try to convince, you know, New York that, hey, we actually might have a serious problem on our hands. So now a task force was created with over two dozen investigators from Rockland County, New Jersey, State Police, Ocean County Prosecutor's Office, and the Haverstraw and Manchester Police Department, all of them dedicated to finding a potential serial killer. It didn't actually take them long before they got a very big clue. And can you guess what the clue is? On August 8th, nine days after Michael's murder, a volunteer fireman was riding his motorcycle down Route 9, about nine miles from where Michael's head and torso had been found, or I'm sorry, his head and his arms had been found. When they stopped to rest, he spotted four large garbage bags sitting just over the other side of the guardrail. After going in for a closer look, he noticed what looked like the outline of a human leg and quickly called the police he had found the rest of the remains of Michael Sakara. Now, just a few hours after the rest of Michael had been found, press began to pounce on the story. That same day, a hastily written article was published in the New York Times discussing all four murdered men, which up to that point had only made it as far as the local newspaper in a few towns. But now that it seemed possible that all the cases were connected and a serial killer of gay men was on the loose, the story 
blew the fuck up, spread like wildfire all throughout New York and especially the queer community. Gay bars all across the city began to hang up and plaster the walls of their bars with signs warning people about being cautious of who they go home with. The signs would have things like, Thinking of going home with someone? Ask them their name, chat with them for a bit, and always trust your instincts. Several queer advisors even began forming a campaign to ed- educate, educate queer people on the dangers currently going on, strongly urging everyone to always let a friend or bartender know the name of a person they plan to leave with, and even get an address if they can to let them know where they're going. And so that was really awesome. The community was rallying to try and protect themselves because someone was murdering them. Now, the day after the New York Times article, the Daily News published a story and officially christened the still unknown killer at the time, the last call killer, due to the fact that he seemed to always pick his victims at last call at the bar. The article also called out the hypocrisy of the mayor and the police at the time, stating that had it been four young Bernard... Burnett women, you would have heard of these murders a lot sooner, and the killer would probably already been caught. Burnett or brunette? Brunette. Sorry. I always have hard times pronouncing Burnett. Burnett. Bernadette. Anyway, so following the news, the breaking news of the last call killer, police began to really focus in on finding any potential witnesses to any of the murders, and pretty much all they were armed with at this point was the false info that they got from Lisa Hall that he worked at St. Vincent's. So local queer advocates actually raised over $10,000 for any info relating to the killer. And eventually police did find a homeless man who stated that he had seen Michael the night of the murder in the company of a man, which he described to police and developed a composite sketch. Police then faxed the sketch to St. Vincent's before requesting requesting the records of any employee with John or Mark in their full name. And they got a hit. A nurse named Mark Holland, who lived in Staten Island and was known to frequent the Five Oaks Bar from time to time and was openly gay. But of course, he was quickly ruled out with DNA evidence. And so investigators were back to square one. DNA evidence? Well, remember, they have the fingerprints still from the bag from Tom's murder. Yeah, Fingerprints aren't DNA, though, right? Or not. I'm sorry. Fingerprints. I was fixing to say, isn't this 1988? This is 1988. No, the, no, 1993. 1983, okay. 93. Even. Oh, 93. Still, still, it's not It's that. very primitive. It was right at the blossoming of the technology, but apologies for that. The man stated that one night, I'm sorry, finally on August 26th, 1993, Police received an anonymous tip from a man who believed that Killer was a nurse he stated worked at Mount Sinai Hospital and who had attempted to tie him up on a previous occasion. The man stated that one night he met a man at a gay bar called Julius and agreed to go back to his apartment in Staten Island. After the two finished having sex, the man passed out and awoke sometime later in the night to find the man attempting to tie him up. Sensing something was wrong, he quickly fled from the apartment. The witness went on to say that he had seen the man on several more occasions at the townhouse bar, but couldn't remember his name. Now, police found the tip to be credible and got the records of every male nurse who worked at the Mount Sinai Hospital. And 
After getting all of their photos, they took them back to the Five Oaks bar and showed them to Lisa Hall to see if any of them matched the man she saw with Michael the night of his murder. As she scanned through the photos, she eventually stopped on one in particular, Richard Rogers. She told police that the suspect had very similar hair to Richard's, but unfortunately could not say with 100% certainty that it was the same man. Sadly, this would be the last credible tip police ever received, and in November 1993, the task force was officially disbanded. So they really did try. They tried hard. But the crime spree itself seemed to stop also as soon as it started. Like I said, this is from less than a three-year time span. And after uh, Michael Sakara's murdered, Richard just stopped. No other bags of body parts or confirmed murders were ever, fo- were ever found following Michael's death, and it would remain that way for the next six years. Now, nobody is for sure exactly why Richard stopped killing during this time. It's very, very rare for serial killers to just quit cold turkey like that, unless of something like they go to jail or a major life event happen. But police do have a theory that Richard was simply biding his time, waiting for the heat to die down, to attempt another murder because he was not expecting the case to explode like that. And now the whole city was on guard. And so police don't think he was just planning to stop. He was just, like I said, he's not a dumb man. He was waiting a few years for them to kind of give up looking for him, figure he moved on, and then he was going to strike again. But thankfully, as far as we know, he committed no other murders, but he did come pretty fucking close. In 1998... Richard went to a piano bar called Regents, where he met a man named Joe Gallagher. Joe was a proofreader who also took care of his ex-boyfriend, who was in hospice care for colon cancer at the time. The two men chatted for a while before Richard invited Joe back to his apartment. After arriving at the apartment, Joe asked to use the phone in order to let his ex know where he was. Afterwards, the two fooled around a bit before going to sleep. Now, Joe awoke at about 4 a.m., that morning to find Richard on top of him with his hands around his throat. At first, he kind of just thought that maybe Richard was into choking sexually, but something didn't feel right to him, and so because when he looked into Richard's eyes, he saw nothing staring back at him. He said it was almost like a zombie. Finally, Joe calmly told Richard that he wasn't enjoying the choking, and that seemed to snap Richard out of the daze because he just released his grip from Joe's neck apologized, and went back to bed. The next morning, he drove Joe back to Manhattan and acted as if nothing had happened. Could you imagine later when everything comes out, thinking you spent the night with a serial serial killer who did attempt to murder you, but you politely changed his mind? Well, well, no, that's the thing. Police believe now that the phone call Joe made to his ex-boyfriend when he got to the apartment is the only thing that saved his life. Because now there was a direct link between Joe and Richard that could get him caught. And so... And it still wasn't enough to really stop him. Because he was like, I'm going to give it a shot and choke this guy to death. But... Well, that's the thing. is like his urges were so strong. Like even when he like understood that there was the potential of getting caught with this one, he almost could not control it. And that's... Uh, oof, that gives me chills just thinking about it. But that is lucky he got away. This is the last known encounter a man had with Richard before his downfall would begin. 
So remember, police were actually <clears throat> able to pull 28 fingerprints off the bags of the body parts, but were never able to find a match. That's mainly because plastic is a really fucking hard material to pull complete prints off of. Even though they had the prints, they weren't detailed or distinct enough, the technology they had at the time. And so it wasn't enough for the data, the database to properly match them to I was, anyone. I was actually wondering if like CODIS was around at this time because you would think he would have gotten fingerprinted at least when he went to that first trial. Uh, but, hold on, hold on. We'll get, we'll get, we'll get to that. We're, we're, you're speeding ahead a little bit, but that's, uh, that's... I've just been thinking about that this whole time because I'm like, he he has to have fingerprints on record because he did go to a murder trial. That that's uh that's gonna come in bottom in the ass here in a, just a second, but yeah no this is um I don't think and correct me if I'm wrong I'm not saying I'm an expert at this I don't think CODIS was each state had their own individual fingerprint database and it wasn't until the late '90s that they started to form a national database of fingerprints. So before then, like if you wanted to test fingerprints from someone in another state, you actually had to like send it off to test in which specific state you wanted. And so they couldn't just put it into a computer and then just all the matches from all the states popped up until about 1999. So even though they had the prints, they weren't detailed or distinct enough for the database to properly match them to anyone. But in 1999, technology was advancing, and newer and more intricate tools were being introduced to help with fingerprint analysis. So in April of 1999, police were contacted by a private investigator hired by Margaret McCauley, Tom's widow. She still wanted justice for her husband's death and asked them for any updates or news in the investigation. Now, although police didn't have any new leads to go off of, that call did make them realize that it's been years since they tested any of the murder uh, evidence. And they realized that technology had improved to a point that there was an actual shot they could get a match from the fingerprints. So, But unfortunately, there was only a handful of machines in the country at the time that had the potential of making such a match. So police loaded the trash bags with the fingerprints on them into a car and drove them eight hours to Toronto to make sure that it wasn't lost in transit. And I will say, I think that's some pretty fucking amazing police work. So good job on those guys. I mean, it really does show that they they cared. With this new tech, new fingerprints were able to be lifted from the bag and tested against the national DNA database and sent them out to multiple states all across the U.S. along with the description of the crimes. Uh, after the police, After that, the police could only wait and hope for a match. And thankfully, they got a hit just a few years later. A few years? I've, I'm about to explain it. Hold on. <laughs> on May 14th, 2001, the New Jersey police received a call from authorities in Maine who stated that the fingerprints lifted from the bag were a match for someone in their system. His name was Richard Rogers, whose fingerprints had been on file ever since his 1973 murder of Fred Spencer there's that karma coming to bottom in the ass. She took a while to get here, but she's here. The reason why it took so long to get a match was due to Maine's official uh, APHIS not going online until the beginning of 2001. And so they hadn't put their fingerprint database online until the beginning of that year. So that's why it took so long. 
So now, looking into his background, police found that Richard had taken every day off from work on the days the murder the of the murders occurred. So on May 28, 2001, officials approached Richard at his job, telling him he was the victim of credit card fraud to get him to lure him down to the station. Once in the interrogation room, however, they quickly caught him off guard by revealing he was actually being questioned related to the murders. Now, at first, he kind of tried to play it cool, stating that while he did know Michael, he had no knowledge of any murders, and he certainly wasn't the murderer. And that's when police were like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, could you um, could you tell us why your fingerprints are all over the bags containing severed heads and body parts? At which point, Richard got really quiet before stating that he wanted a lawyer. Now, Richard was officially arrested for the murders of Tom and Eddie and charged with first-degree murder. And um, it wasn't all four. Those were the two murders that they actually had circumstantial evidence to kind of go against him. And so it's better than nothing. And if I was calling for a lawyer, I would get that lawyer that got me out of that first one because that was a miracle right there. It was a fucking miracle. Like, do your magic again. Now, after his arrest, police got a search warrant and searched Richard's condo where they found plastic bags similar to the ones the bodies were found in, as well as bottles of Versed, a common drug used to put patients to sleep in surgery, Bible verses that Richard had highlighted mentioning decapitation, which I didn't know the there was verses like that, but I've never read the Bible, so I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And they also found a stash of photograph Polaroids that Richard had taken in the early 90s of construction workers working outside of his apartment. And they noticed how he had taken a red marker and he had drawn lines all over the workers' bodies to make it look like where he had dismembered the bodies of the men. And so he was obviously having some very... uh, Descriptive fantasies. Now, Richard's trial began on October 26, 2005, and for some fucking reason, he was actually offered a plea deal. If he pleads guilty to manslaughter in both cases, then he would receive a 10 to 15 year sentence with the possibility of parole. But he declined. Thank God. I'm guessing he was feeling cocky after being already acquitted of one murder. But even still, I'm like, he almost... Almost. He'd be getting out about this time. Well, it seems Richard's luck would run out because in November 2005, after just three and a half hours of deliberating, a jury found Richard Rogers guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently serving his sentence at the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey. Now, before we close out this case, I do want to take a brief time and mention how although Richard only is confirmed to have killed five people. Police do believe that it is very likely he has murdered at least several more people across several states as he would often take vacations uh, around the East Coast. And they do think it's very highly likely that he murdered people when he was on these vacations. Richard is the prime suspect in the murder of 21-year-old Joe Piero in Lake Mary, Florida, Joe was last seen leaving a gay bar in Orlando, and on April 10th, 1982, his body was found off the interstate having been strangled, stabbed six times, and his left nipple was bitten off. Now, Richard was actually in the area at the time for a high school reunion, and a bite mark found on Joe's body was very similar to Richard's teeth, 
although a positive match could not be made. That is still an open case, but Richard is still the prime suspect in it. Investigators believe that Richard could have victims in California, Florida, West Virginia, and Arkansas. Uh, although he continues to refuse to speak to police, he doesn't give them any information, and he's never honestly really said why he did what he did, other than just being knucking futs. And that is the story of Richard Rogers, a.k.a. The Last Call Killer. So what do we think? It was another sad one just because, you know, he was caught right off on his first murder and just got away. Those are always the ones that um, upset me the most. Those ones where it's like they had the possibility to, like, prevent all of this. It's sort of like the grinder killer, uh, Stephen Port, because you then you just can't help but thinking, like, once you reach that point, everything afterwards couldn't shouldn't have happened. And also, you know, usually, like, when you listen to a lot of cases, the jury is normally, like, they're gunning usually to put somebody away. And most times, you know. Especially if you bash a man's head in with a fucking hammer. From the back, you know, like, multiple times from the back. Then try to dispose of the body. It just seems so weird that he got off and everything. So, I mean. Either... It was the jury had it out for Fred, or that was the best fucking lawyer in the world. Yeah, need to find out what that lawyer's name was. That's who I'm going to call if I ever get arrested. But yes, this was a very sad case. And like I said, it has been getting a lot more attention in recent years because Along Green's book, which again, highly recommend, and also uh, the new season of American Horror Story. But it's... um. This is a horrific case, and this isn't even the first series of back murders that happened in New York. So in the 70s, there was another, still uh, to this day, unidentified serial killer, and it's called like the bag killer or something like that, but more dismembered gay men were found in trash bags around New York. And so that wasn't Richard Rogers. That was a completely unrelated killer. But it just goes to show you how dangerous... It was and continues to be for queer people. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, if you're going to go and hook up with somebody, that's cool. Probably be careful and not accept drinks and everything because you never know. And that goes for straight that's people, straight queer people. straight people, gay people, anybody. If You know, there's nothing wrong with going and having some fun with Mm-mm. anybody. But just be careful and protect yourself and... This person is a stranger, like literally a stranger, you know, like they're the guy that got away from him that he didn't know his name and he had, they had went home, they had had sex, everything. He didn't know his name. So, you know, you just got to be careful and protect yourself. Yeah. So like we always say, just stay dangerous out there. Be sharp, be vigilant, Uh, look out for yourselves, look out for others. And don't accept drinks. You did not see the bartender pour yourself. And, uh, well, with that, thank you for coming to our TED Talk. Um, if you guys enjoyed us, please give us five stars. Leave a review on Spotify or iTunes or wherever it is you listen to us at. It helps us out so much, and we'd love to hear the feedback. If you want to see photos from this case, you can follow us on Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod. That's P-O-D, pod. 
or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. We post photos from every case, so if you're more of a visual learner than an auditory learner, go check us out. And until then, well, until next week, stay dangerous out there, and we'll see you Monday. See you soon. Bye.